This podcast will analyse developments in China, focusing on the framework for foreign investment review and trends across Southeast Asia. Joining me today is Karen Ip, a corporate partner in our Beijing office, David Dorborn, a corporate partner in our Jakarta office, and Ying Staten, who's head of Asia at Global Council. So, Karen, I think it'd be helpful if you could start by giving us an overview of the Chinese foreign investment regime. Oh, so I think what we can start with is to make a distinction of the China inbound and China outbound, and then for China inbound, I think briefly we can um, uh, describe as that we have three major systems to review China inbound. Firstly, is to check whether or not it is in line with the foreign investment policy. The second one is the natural. Uh, the national security review, and the third one is the merger control filing. For foreign investment policy, um, since the introduction of the negative list back in a few years, 2015, uh, there has been a great change on the way how the Chinese government will review the foreign investment in China. So they introduced the negative list. If those Projects or industrial sectors that fall into the negative list, that it means you need to get approval from the Ministry of Commerce or its local branch. If it is beyond the negative list, what you need to do is that you just only need to the reporting to、um, the Ministry of Commerce or its local branch. Okay, thank you, Karen. And in terms of inbound foreign investment into China. Can you give us a flavour of the practical approach that has been taken in China when you're looking at a foreign acquirer?、Uh, I think what the Chinese government is trying to achieve、uh, in 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 the、um, the current、uh, system is that they try to、um, control the foreign investment in those highly sensitive、uh, sectors in China, like the telecommunication, media, news, publication. And there is a trend that they're going to、um, relax, re- relax the control or restriction on certain surface、uh, sectors, like the banking sector, securities, healthcare, tourism. And we expect that、um, the Chinese government will further shorten the negative list. Nowadays, the negative list has covered forty-eight. Uh, sectors that will require approval by the Chinese government. So our pre- what we、um, anticipate or what w- our impression of the Chinese government is that、uh, definitely there is a determination to further open、um, the Chinese market to the foreign investor, which they have the sort of commitment under the WTO. But on the other hand,、um, Chinese government still want to protect certain. Uh, industry, which they believe these the, the players still haven't the enough capacity ability to compete with the foreigner, or those、um, sectors that the Chinese government still want to have a control. Thanks very much, Ying. What trends are we seeing in Chinese outbound investment? The broad trend is that over the past decade, as the Chinese economy has continued to grow and as people have become wealthier, there's been more and more Chinese capital flowing overseas. China is a nation of savers.、Um, China's savings rate has been estimated to be close to 50%, which is almost double the global average. It's also been relatively more difficult for Chinese retail investors to access opportunities overseas compared to their counterparts in developed countries. This has created an internal liquidity bubble within China, 
with excess cash and credit driving up asset prices. You can see this in the property market and in the stock market. Now, the Chinese government has to find a controlled way of letting some of this pressure out of the system and allow capital to flow overseas. But this needs to be done carefully. What we saw in the years leading up to 2016 was a torrential rush of overseas acquisitions, particularly by some of the big privately owned Chinese insurance companies. They bought up football clubs, yachts, the Waldorf Astoria, and countless other assets without really paying much attention to the price. This then led in 2016 to a government clampdown on overseas acquisitions and a temporary moratorium on outbound deals. The Chinese government's concerns were, one, around capital flight, um, which was exerting downward pressure on the RMB, and two, on irrational acquisitions by some of these firms, which was exacerbating systemic risk within the Chinese financial system, and also putting the savings and insurance premiums of ordinary investors at risk. Since then, over the past three years, I think the government has been trying to find that balance. The moratorium was lifted, and they've introduced new streamlined measures for reviewing foreign investment deals. Over the long term, I think that the growth of Chinese capital going out is going to be inevitable. Um, and this is particularly true as we're entering a phase of slower growth for the Chinese economy compared to what happened in the past decade. David, what are the key features of the FDI regime in Indonesia, and how does this compare to or has been influenced by the Chinese regime? Hi, Veronica. So um, I think Indonesia um, has had an active FDI regime um, since the 1960s and, you know, in that sense is uh, well well trodden. Um, the rules have evolved significantly over that period, but the basic idea is that uh, any foreign investor looking to operate in Indonesia needs to set up a local company uh, which obtains what we call PMA status, um, and that is effectively a special status given to um, companies that have foreign shareholders. Um, the, the, the rules, however, do restrict ownership of um, PMA companies um, depending on the sector. Um, some sectors are remain closed to foreign investment. Some of them have uh, a maximum percentage of foreign ownership allowed and others uh, have other, other restrictions, for example, a requirement for a local uh, partnership with, with local businesses. Um, th the rules, as, as I said, have changed and there has been a gradual liberalisation. Um, most recently, and probably most importantly, last year, a new system was introduced uh, known as the one-stop service system, which in effect uh, turned the system on its head in that we no longer need to obtain um, foreign uh, investment approval before the investment can be made. But through the new one-stop um, service, what we call OSS, uh, a, a company can be registered um, as long as it fits in with the relevant requirements for foreign investment in that sector. For example, the amount of um, uh, foreign ownership allowed for a particular sector. 
as long as it, it satisfies that requirement, you will get a basic investment approval within, within a day or two, which is a huge change from the old system whereby we used to have to wait you know, a month or two or longer in certain sectors. So this was a fundamental change. This government um, has been very concerned about the time in which foreign investment um, has taken uh, to, be, to be approved. And, and this, this new system has, has changed that very significantly and has made, therefore made a, a, big, a big impact, I think, on the way foreign investors perceive and what impact is China's Belt and Road Initiative having in Southeast Asia? Now, Belt and Road is in many ways President Xi's flagship international policy program. The idea is to create a global sphere of influence for China along key trading routes, at the same time exporting China's excess capital and industrial capacity. BRI has had a rocky year. There's been growing criticism that participation in BRI amounts to a debt trap for developing countries and a political backlash in a number of countries, particularly in Southeast and Southern Asia, where the relationship with China has become a really contentious issue during elections, for example. Countries where we've seen this in the past 12 to 18 months include Myanmar, Pakistan, Malaysia, Vietnam, and the Maldives. For example, in Malaysia, you saw a very clear attempt in the last 12 months by the incoming government under Mahathir to reposition the country vis-a-vis China and to renegotiate a number of the key infrastructure deals that had been signed under his predecessor, Najib Razak. The Chinese government is cognizant of the reputational problem that BRI is facing. It's placed more of an emphasis on the importance of investing not just in the hardware, roads, bridges, ports, but also the software required for facilitating trade, such as capacity building, furthering trade agreements and economic cooperation zones, Chinese companies also often come under criticism for having poor standards when it comes to ESG and respecting local customs. And the Chinese government has pledged to provide training for these companies around these issues and also to create a dedicated platform for this type of service. David, given given what you've said about the FDI regime in Indonesia and, and also other countries in Southeast Asia, what are your top tips for foreign buyers considering investing in those countries? I think um, it, the, the key to successful foreign investment in this part of the world is to understand the regulations. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, a lot of rumor about what's possible and what's not, but the rules do change a lot in in this part of the world. Sometimes, without socialization, a, you know, a, a rule can change, which can significantly impact. Um, a foreign investment proposal. So my, my, my starting point is always to make sure that you're up to, you have up-to-date information about a particular sector and what you want to achieve in, the, um, in, in, the, in, in that sector. Um, if it's an M&A deal, as I said before, um, merger control may, may be something that needs to be taken into account uh, early on in the process. And what practical risks do foreign investors face in transactions involving Chinese assets or interests, Karen? Yeah, uh, probably I can share my uh, recent experience with some of the audience is that uh, when you deal with a state-owned company, uh, your partner in China, you might need to think more about the underlying rationale of state-owned company uh, in doing the sort of formation of JV with you, 
because for most of the foreigners, I think they would just consider whether or not um, there is a business case for them to go ahead with this joint venture. But if you see it from the perspective of the state-owned companies, sometimes they might have a different agenda. They might insist that um, this must be give some benefits to the people in general. For instance, whether or not if you come to uh, acquire certain interests in a state-owned company, whether or not you can ensure there will be no redundant of the employees, at least in the first two, three years, whether or not you will be able to um, generate um, sufficient tax income to the local government. Thank you, Karen, David and Ying, for that overview of the Chinese regime and also comparison with some of the other regimes in Southeast Asia. And thank you for listening, everyone. I do hope you've enjoyed it. Please do let us know if you've got any questions at all or any feedback. You can contact me on veronica.roberts at hsf.com. And I'm very happy to answer your questions or I can put you straight in touch with one of the speakers that we've had on this series. Thank you.